Good morning. Hold on, just asking for a code. Got it. Okay. Good morning. How are y'all? Good. I'm glad y'all are here. My name is Fred. I get to be the lead pastor here. And if um, if this is your first time here and I haven't gotten to meet you yet, I would love to say hi. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I'd love to say hi um, before you leave. So make sure we connect. All right. Um, let's see. Today, um, I, I want to ask you a question. But before I do, I do want to give you a little heads up. If, if today sparks something in you and you need prayer, whether you're here in person or whether you're online, I want you to know that we have a prayer team uh, that is available. In, in person, you can just head to the back and they will be there to pray for you uh, as the, the last songs of worship are going on. And if you're online, there is a, a prompt to meet with a, a prayer person and they would be glad to, to pray with you, to pray for you, whatever it is that, uh, that this sparks in you. And with that, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 25 through 47. And, and as you're turning there, I do want to throw a question out to you. Uh, and, the, and the question is this. What is your reaction to Jesus? Right? We've been going through the Gospel of Mark for almost a year now. And uh, we've called this series Jesus According to Mark because what we've done is we have focused in on Mark's writing Mark's letter to the church to describe who Jesus is. And as we go through this book, we've kind of, uh, without asking this question directly, it's the question that Mark keeps asking, and he keeps leaving us in these positions of what is your reaction to this Jesus? And so what I want to do is I want to ask you, what is your reaction to Jesus? And, and it's not a trick question, but I will say the reason I'm asking it is because it can actually... Um, be a, a, an alarm in some ways for maybe some thinking that's going on in your head and in your heart uh, that might be a little off. Because if your reaction to Jesus is something like one of these, like, I love Jesus, right? Sure, you read the Gospel of Mark, it's great, I love Jesus. Or maybe, maybe the reaction is, no, I need Jesus, or maybe the reaction is, I, I don't know much about this Jesus. Because like, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. I, I, don't, I don't know much about Jesus. And, and, and I said it's not a trick question. Maybe it is. Maybe if, if your responses line up with these, <clears throat> um, I want you to look at each one of them. And, and what do you notice about each one? Right? For our non-grammar people which I am one, so I Googled this to make sure it was correct. Notice the subject of the sentence, right? What is the subject? Now, the subject, for all of our non-grammar people, the subject of the sentence, and I'm looking at my notes to make sure I get this right, right? The subject of a sentence is the person, place, or thing performing the action in the sentence, right? My grammar folks, am I right? My teacher's in the room? Great, great, great. Thank you, Google, right? In all of those sentences, who's performing the action, I. Now, see, here's one of the things I've noticed just about life and, 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 and mentors I've had and, and being around people that have walked with Jesus for, for decades, for 50 years. When this question is asked of them, what do you think about Jesus? Here's the response that I keep getting. is They don't start with I. 
they usually get something like this, Jesus, Jesus has been good to me. Jesus has been kind to me. Jesus has gotten me through the highs and the lows and everything in between. And as I thought about that, I thought about there is this this thing that I, I hope we get to do today. And it's this. I hope we get to switch the subject in our response to Jesus. Right? Instead of our response to Jesus being about us, what if... What if it's about Jesus? What if, what if that was Mark's whole point of writing the gospel of Jesus the way that he did was to draw you in into such a way as to make you question, to make you, to make you propose this question, what are you going to do with this Jesus? What is your reaction to him? And that's what we're going to see today, because today we're going to see seven reactions to Jesus. As Matt preached last week in the ongoing story of Jesus, we saw that he was crucified last week. And today, spoiler alert, we're going to see him die. And what Mark is going to do is he is going to show us all these different people, persons, and groups of people. He's going to show us what these different reactions to Jesus is as he's on the cross. What are these different reactions to Jesus' death on the cross? And we're going to see this spectrum of those who are, don't know much about Jesus, those who are without Jesus, and then we're going to see this, this like transition person, and then we're going to see those with Jesus. And y'all, we're going to see what looks scarily familiar in us, in our hearts, and our souls in this church when we look at the people without Jesus. And we're going to see grace in this transition, and then we're going to see this idea and this response that's something we can all shoot for. And as your pastor, that's what I hope we as a church do, is we lean more towards these last two than these, these first four and, and even in the, in the transition. And so with that, because well, here's, here's the outcome. Here's what I hope we leave this place with today, is I hope that we leave this place with more peace in our life. If you need that, just give me a nod, right? Give me the good old evangelical grunt. Mm. Right? I mean, you don't have to amen me. You don't have to do it like, like it's okay. Just mmm, right? Maybe more comfort from the Lord in our life. Maybe more courage in our life. Like, that's what I hope switching the subject allows us to do. Well, let's, let's dive in. Uh, chapter 15, verse, uh, verse 25 says this. It says, And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the, and the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And, they, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So, so through them, we're going to see this first response to Jesus being crucified. Now, they have a pretty good view, don't they? Like they are literally right next to Jesus being crucified. And what's interesting is if you've read the other gospel accounts, you know their stories, right? You know, you know one of them uh, eventually shows faith in Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But what's interesting is Mark, Mark doesn't show us that. 
He doesn't show us that. He leaves us with these two guys hanging uh, next to Jesus, crucified, without a stitch of clothes on, uh, nailed to crosses just like Jesus is. But we do get to see their response. But it's not here. You actually have to jump down to, to verse 32. Look at verse 32 at the end of it. And it says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Right? So, so the other gospel accounts, like I said, they show us, one of them shows his faith in Christ, but Mark wants to leave us with their immediate reaction to Jesus, and they reviled him. Now, reviled is one of those words, like when was the last time you used the word reviled? Like you came home and said, I just revile my boss. Like, I don't even know if that's the correct usage, because we don't use it anymore, right? So I did a little deep diving, I, I, I looked at the Greek, but... You know, and it said reviled. That's what it means. Um, and so I grabbed an English dictionary to give me a definition of it, which I found helpful. Because here's what reviled means. And this word we use a lot. And I think we even use it in our souls with God. Because reviled means to be disappointed in. Right? It means to be disapproving, to be disappointed in. Now, see, here's how this plays out to you and me, because here's what I think was going through their minds as they hung on the cross next to Jesus. And it's a warning sign for us, right, that I need to switch the subject when I think Jesus isn't doing enough for me. Right, because that's the heart of disappointment, isn't it, that, that, that God's not doing enough. Right? And I get it. These guys are being crucified next to Jesus. Jesus kept telling people he was the son of God. He kept healing people. If he wanted to, in an instant, he could take all three of them off the cross and heal them and move them on with their life. And yet, he's just hanging there next to them. And for the majority of the time he's there, he's silent. You see, in them, I think we see this heart of being disappointed. That Jesus isn't doing enough for me. Jesus isn't doing what I want him to do for me. Right? But y'all, Jesus is going to show us a better way. And what we're going to do is we go through these. I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit, right? Because I'm not going to tell you the better way until we see it in Jesus. Let's go on to the next, the next example. Verse 29. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you... Uh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so here we see those who are walking by, right? They're, they're literally just walking by. And just as a reminder, the way Romans, <coughs> excuse me, the way Romans crucified people is they did it for a couple of reasons. One, like I said, they would, they, would, they would take all of their clothes off of them. And so the pictures you see of Jesus wearing a loincloth, those are just because it's God and it's a little embarrassing, I guess, to see him without clothes on. But the accurate way to portray that is to see Jesus on the cross without a stitch of clothes on. And it was there to intentionally produce shame. Shame in, in, those who, in those who were crucified. Shame in those who watched. And it was done that way for a reason. Because when you crucified someone, it was a very slow and painful way to die. And the Romans wanted people like you and me as we walked by to see somebody struggling for life because they did something against the Roman law. 
And it was, it was done that way to induce this fear into people that if I break the law, I'm going to be like that. And so they would do this alongside busy roads so that everybody could see because crucifixion was this way to show the, the, the Roman citizenship. This is not the Roman uh, community. This is not the way we behave. And Jesus was there. And it says that those who walked by derided him. Okay, let's put that in the same category of revile. When was the last time you derided someone? Right? Not a word that we use very often, is it? But here's what deride means. It means to make fun of someone because you perceive them as worthless. Right? To make fun of someone because you perceive them as worthless. It doesn't mean that they are worthless. It means that from your perspective, they are. Right? And to those passing by, Jesus was perceived as worthless. Right? Because if he was the Messiah that was supposed to lead them, if he was the Messiah that was supposed to kick Rome out of Israel, if he was the Messiah that was supposed to make Israel great again, what's he doing dying on a cross? It didn't make any sense to them, right? Now, to us, in our world, we deride someone when we consider them worthless, right? It's the, it's the, the, the macho guy, I don't even know what you call him nowadays, who, who catcalls some girl walking down the street because to him she is worthless, right? Right? Or maybe in our world, the church world, because we probably don't do that very often. But it's when we take that long look at someone. And it turns from curiosity to lust. And in our minds, we take something from them. That's deriding. Right? It's, it's, it's when you see the person that's different from you. Right? And you make a joke about them because you think that they aren't worthy of your kindness and respect. Right? It's, it's, it's this one. It's when um, someone has a different political view than you do and you call them an idiot. Because surely, if they were educated, they would have the same view as you. Not necessarily. That's deriding. Now that's what we do amongst each other, but, but when that is directed at God, here is what it looks like. This is the warning signal that I need to switch the subject from I to Jesus when I think Jesus isn't worth my time. Right? When I think Jesus isn't worth my time, when I become one of these passerbys, these people, remember, they were walking by and he wasn't even worth their time to stop and look at and to wonder and to ponder and they just made fun of him as they walked by. And y'all, when, 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 when we need to switch the subject when we think Jesus isn't worth our time, when we think reading his word isn't worth our time, when we think praying to him and hearing the, the voice of the Holy Spirit isn't worth our time, that is deriding God. We are passing by. Right? You see, Jesus wasn't worth their time because he thought they were worthless. 
Now, Pete Scazzaro is this guy who uh, has written a lot of great books on emotionally spiritual health or spiritual emotional health. Like, read them, right? Matt and I call him Father Pete sometimes because he just has these great truths for us as followers of Jesus. And he, he talks about this, this, this idea of Jesus called the crucified Jesus, which is the Jesus we see in Scripture. And then he also talks about this idea of the Americanized Jesus, which is the Jesus that we become comfortable with, the Jesus that agrees with us, the Jesus that lines up with our thinking. And you can see how that reeks of I being the subject, right? I'm the filter that Jesus has to get through instead of Jesus is the filter that I need to get through. You see, that's when we just pass him by because we see the crucified Jesus as much less worth than the Americanized Jesus. But rest assured, the crucified Jesus literally is going to show us a better way. Right? Verse 31 says this, It says, and also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, but he can't can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see him and believe. Right, and so here we, Mark focuses on the chief priest, right? And what's interesting is they're there, they're watching, and they're talking amongst themselves, Right? They're, they're, they're talking amongst themselves. Now, in what it says, it says that they mock him. And mock means to laugh or to tease. And they do this amongst themselves. And they do this, you can almost picture the way Mark writes it. They're talking amongst themselves. You can see them like talking under their breath to each other. Because they've watched Jesus teach. They've watched him perform miracles. They've been there as he's healed others. And now they're saying, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. He talked about healing others. We saw him heal others. He can't even heal himself. He's, he's a fraud. Right? And their comments reek of self-righteousness. Right? And their problem is, if this is God, he sure isn't acting like it. Because my God doesn't get crucified. My God conquers you see, I need to switch the subject when I think Jesus doesn't fit my box. And here's what's interesting. Like, like we've seen Peter. You know, and every time you see Peter in Scripture, you're like, bless his heart. Right? Because he's so familiar to us. And in Peter, we see this reaction only, only a little bit different. Because in Peter, you see that he is willing to fight for Jesus. Right? When the soldiers come, he grabs his sword and he cuts a dude's ear off, right? Like he is willing to fight for Jesus. But we see this transition that Peter needs to make in the Gospels that yes, he's willing to fight for Jesus, but is he willing to die for Jesus when it comes down to it? And that's where we see Peter change. So exciting. So exciting to see. You see, We get to let Jesus make the box. And when we make the box for Jesus to fit into, I can guarantee you Jesus won't fit in it. Because that's not the way he works. You get to fit in his box. 
Right? When you and I let God's word, enlightened and empowered by the Holy Spirit, when we let that show us Jesus, this is when we switch the subject. Let's look at verse 33. Verse 33 says this. It says, uh, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. So finally, Mark's going to show us what Jesus has to say in the midst of all these reactions. And here's what he says. Aloy, aloy, lama shabachthani. Makes perfect sense. That'd be my reaction. Mark knows this isn't going to a bunch of, of, of Jewish people. Right? It didn't then, it's not now. So it says, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, so in the midst of, 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 of Jesus being on the cross and, and people that are passing by making fun of him and, and, these, and these religious leaders making fun of him and mocking him and, and people reviling him, right? Like in the midst of all that, when the, when the clock changes, when the clock changes to, to the sixth hour, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, three o'clock. Or that's the ninth hour. Noon is the sixth hour. So Mark gives us those little timestamps, and here's why. Because judgment is what darkness represents. Over the land for three hours, right? From the sixth hour noon to three o'clock, the ninth hour. And then at three o'clock, Jesus speaks. Now here's what's interesting about the Hebrew rhythm of their day. is three o'clock was the hour of prayer. And at 3 o'clock, if you were Jewish, you would take some time and pray. And so, so when the clock turns to 3, Jesus starts with this psalm, Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? It's a psalm that David wrote when he was in the, in the, in the, in the mires of depression. Because David, I mean, in my, you know, I have a rule with counseling. Typically, it's meet before you treat. But we can learn a lot about David from his writings, and we can see that he struggled with depression. And in the midst of that depression, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's what depression feels like. And if anybody in here, anybody listening has been depressed, you know the depth of those words. Because you know what it feels like to feel like God is loving everybody else except you. And that's where David was. And he wrote this psalm that starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you read Psalm 22, it makes this progression. And what Jesus was doing during this hour of prayer is starting with this psalm, knowing that those who were there would know the rest of this psalm. In the progression of Psalm 22, verse 19, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to tell you. Verse 19 says, but you, O Lord, be not far off. Verse 21 says, you have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. So, so not only like, Lord, here I am, but Lord, you have been faithful to me in the past and you are not far off. Which is, by the way, people say this is where God forsook Jesus. Here's my question. Why do you pray to a God that has forsaken you? You don't. You pray to a God because he's close even when it feels like he has forsaken you. And that's what Jesus 
is showing us. Because in verse 21, you have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. And then, and then David looks to his future and he said, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And so David is saying, saying, God, yes, I feel forsaken right now, but you have been faithful before. You will be faithful this time. And I will tell people how faithful you are in the midst of my sorrows. And verse 26 says that those who seek him shall praise the Lord in all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And so Jesus starts with this psalm, my God, my God, you have forsaken me, and a psalm that ends with, no God, you have been there all along, you have been there before, you will be there again, and, and we will be victorious. And so in the midst of this darkness and judgment, there is this song of victory that starts in sorrow. You see, we pray because we know that God is near, even when it seems like he's not. And what Jesus is doing is a prayer that is such a good type of prayer, and it's called a prayer of lament. And Jesus is saying, and this is what a prayer of lament is, a prayer of lament is this declaration of the real and true circumstances in your life, the tough ones and the bad ones, and it is a prayer of the undying, eternal faithfulness of God. Both of those things. That is a prayer of lament. And what we see in these first reactions is we see what it looks like when we just see the bad and forget the faithfulness of God. In Jesus, in the midst of all these reactions, Mark is showing us that yes, there's always gonna be people that deride you, there's always gonna be people that rile you, there's always gonna be people that make fun of you, there's always gonna be people who don't see the value in who you are as created in the image of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit with gifts that this church needs, gifts that, that this community needs, there's always going to be people who don't see that. But God is faithful. There's always going to be bad bosses at work. There's always going to be bad days at work. There's always going to be pop quizzes in school. There's always going to be tests that you haven't prepared for, right? Or even tests that you did prepare for and still failed. Right? Those are the ones that actually hurt. Right? Like, like it's the ones that I didn't study for and I failed. I'm like, yeah, good point. Right? But the ones I did study for and failed, those are the ones that hurt. And God is faithful. Right? You see, their declarations of the bad, the ugly, and the tough parts are missing the faithfulness in God, this deep trust in God. Keep this in mind, because now Jesus has spoken, and he said, hey, here's the way we respond, is what Mark is showing us. And he's going to show us someone who's, who's kind of in the middle of this, because, because look, at, look at what happens next. Now, instead of the passerbys, we have those who have stopped. Verse 35 says this. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Right? And so now, like I said, you had the people that walked by. Now you've got people that are standing there and they're watching this happen. 
And they could have a whole range of, of curiosity about Jesus, to faithfulness in Jesus. And what Mark captures in this group is that they are waiting for God to do something. They are waiting for a miracle. Right? And for us, it's this, it's this transition point. You know, like, like Jesus has spoken and said, and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And reminded people of this psalm. And the way it works in the Jewish faith is that, is that when you start it, you finish it. And so, so in their minds, they, they took his, 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 his start, they took his, his beginning point, and they have finished it in their heads. And now they realize, no, God is faithful, and God is kind, and God is good, and God will get us through this. And they're standing there watching they're standing there watching, and they're like, God's got to do something. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. I bet Elijah is going to come down because you know, you know, two of his guys told us Elijah came and met him on the mountaintop. Elijah and Moses did. So he's done it before. I bet he'll do it. I bet, I, I bet, I bet money Elijah is going to come down and do this because this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And y'all, in them, we see this this need to switch the subject when I think Jesus has to prove himself to me. Right? That's when I is at the beginning of the sentence instead of Jesus because Jesus has got to prove himself to me that I won't believe unless God does something specific. Because right? that's what they're saying. If Elijah comes down, we will know he is the Messiah. But y'all, we know how the story goes, doesn't he? Does Elijah come down? No. Jesus dies. Y'all, in the church, I gotta tell you, this is the reaction that is very, very common in us. That if God doesn't, I'm not sure I will. If God doesn't fix this in my marriage, I'm not sure I'll be faithful. If God doesn't fix this in my life, I'm not sure I can worship him. If God doesn't fix this in our society, I'm not sure I can follow him. You know, it's, 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 the, it's the person that does this if-then with God. And y'all, those just don't flesh out well. And, and Mark's going to show us why, because watch this. Verse 37 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. Right, and so when Jesus dies, he utters this, these words as the last words, and people hear that in Psalms or, or in their head, Psalm 22 is in their head, and he dies, and, and then something happens far off, that the people here that are waiting for Elijah have no idea what happens. In the, in the Jewish temple, there was this, this room, right, uh, that was considered to be the dwelling place of God. The Ark of the Covenant was there, and uh, the high priest would only go in once a year to, to, do what, to make sacrifice in there and do his, do his stuff in there. And tradition has, it's nowhere in Scripture, but it's kind of fun, is that he would go in with a rope tied to his ankle so that if he did anything wrong, he would die and they could pull him out without having to go in, right? Like that's how sacred this room was, that if, if this guy dies, we can't even go in to save him, so we better have a way to pull him out, 
right? Well, when Jesus died, because that room was separated from the other room by this curtain that was 80 feet tall is what I've read. That curtain was torn from the top to the bottom, which shows that when Jesus died, something happened. It meant that anybody could approach God now. Anybody. Not just the high priest, not just those in the temple, not even those purified the way that, that, that go through all the steps, that anybody, that God was accessible to anyone now because of Jesus' death. You see, here's the deal. Waiting for a miracle means that you don't get to see the other ones that are happening around you all the time. When you wait for God to do one thing, to prove himself to you, you don't get to see the great things that he's doing around you already. And these people were standing there looking for Elijah, waiting for Elijah any minute now, any minute now. And off in the distance, they heard this murmur and gasp that the curtain had been torn. They're like, yeah, 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 not important. What's important is Elijah's gonna come. You see, if you're looking for God in this specific miracle, we're going to miss all the ones that he's doing around us. And that curtain being torn shows us the relationship with God is open to all people, right? To you and me, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, in Jesus, we can have this good and right relationship with God. Look at verse 39. We're going to see uh, two more, two more. Verse 39 says this, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it was this way, he breathed his last, bre- he breathed his last breath and said, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now here's what's interesting about this centurion, right? Because in him we see this, this picture of what it looks like when the subject is switched. Because here's the deal, if you were a Roman centurion, it meant that you ruled a, a, a large portion of, of military men and, and you were one of them and, and you had people under your, but here's the deal, to say yes to the military meant that you said yes to Caesar is God. You said yes to the fact that the guy who is Caesar is God. And when, when this guy sees Jesus die, there is a transition that happens. And he says, surely this man is God. In other words, there is this shift in his allegiance from Caesar being God to Jesus being God. And let me tell you, that is a big shift in the subject. Because that is when he's saying, my entire life, my, <clears throat> my well-being, my provision for my family, everything that I've known in my life up until this point, there is a shift. And now it's about Jesus being God instead of Caesar. You see, we know that the subject has been switched when we understand that Jesus is my God. That there is no other God before him. When all other allegiances are second, third, and fourth, that's when we know the subject has been switched and Jesus is in the right place. Look at verse 40. Verse 40 says this. It says, And there are also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and, and, uh, and of Joseph and, and, uh, Joseph and Solomon, 
And when he was in Galilee, he followed, they, they followed him and ministered to him. And there was also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, it's important to know women were there. Women were disciples of Jesus. And we're actually not going to see their reaction today. We're going to see it next Sunday at Easter. But what we need to see is that they are witnessing what's happening. And they are witnessing, uh, specifically, they're going to witness where Jesus was laid. Let's look at Joseph of Arimathea, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath... Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, because it usually took a long time, by the way, for people to die of crucifixion, and and Jesus just moved right along. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned in the centurion that he was dead... He granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out on the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, right? And so Joseph of Arimathea was this religious leader, right? And and notice in verse 43, it says that he took courage, Different translations may have different words, but, 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 but he took courage and he went to Pilate. Why? Because we see that the subject had switched for him. Because what he did involved risk. He was a member of the same group of people. Remember the high priest that were making fun of Jesus at the cross? He was in their group, right? And I don't know if he was physically in their group with him as they were making fun of Jesus, but those are his people. And now he's taking this risk by being associated with Jesus and putting Jesus in, in, in his own tomb. And what he's doing is he, just like the centurion, is stepping out of ranks and aligning himself with Jesus instead of with them. And see, we know the subject has switched when Jesus is who I order all my life around. Right? Joseph chose Jesus over loyalty to religion. Right? Joseph chose Jesus over loyalty to his position of power in the church. And when you and I choose faithfulness to Jesus over being accepted by or being seen as in by others, That's when we have switched the subject. And so let me ask you, is there someone or something in your life that has more priority than Jesus does? Is it your family? Is it your kids? Is it it your job? Right? is Is it friends that have more priority in your life over Jesus? Is it your idea of what life is supposed to be and supposed to look like? Does an idea have more authority and power over your life than Jesus? If so, then we can be like Joseph here. Right? And we'll have time to, to process this in just a minute because verse 47, and we'll end with this, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of of. of Joseph, Joseph, I don't know. Because I grew up in Texas. I keep wanting to say Jose. (laughs) 
Well, let's just call it that. Mary, the mother of Jose, saw where he was laid, right? Y'all hated reading out loud in school, and look at me now. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? But remember, they're a witness to all of this, and we'll see why next week. Because their reaction is coming today, here's what we get to do. We get to end this message with communion. And um, if, the, if the elders who are serving communion would go ahead and come on down, um, I want to kind of tell you about what I'd like you to do as we reflect on communion. Now, to those uh, who don't believe in Jesus, I just want to tell you, um, of course, you are uh, welcome here. This table is for those who have said yes to this Jesus. And so if you're one of these people like this centurion, who I think Mark put him first to show that, that when the curtain was torn and it was in ava- and, and, and the relationship with God was available to everyone, the first person he shows after that is a Roman centurion to show that, yeah, the relationship with God really is open to anyone. He didn't start with one of the disciples. He started with someone who was far off, and maybe this is you. And if this is you, then you can say yes to this Jesus. And it's very simple. It's seeing his death on the cross and his resurrection as the only way to have a good and right and personal relationship with the God who loves you and the God who created you and the God who has always been faithful to you. And if you haven't said yes to this Jesus, then let today be the day you do that. And when you come down to the table to receive communion, that will be your first public act as a display of your faith. Many of this room have already said yes to Jesus. And for you, as you come down to the table and as AJ plays some music for us, here's what I want us to ponder before we come down is I want us to ponder what in our life does have more priority than Jesus? What in our life has I as the subject instead of Jesus? And here's a deal with communion. It's, it's interesting. If, if you were there with Jesus and you were taking communion with him at what we have seen the picture of the Last Supper, right? If you were there, Jesus would have taken the bread and he would have broken it and he would have given it to you. And then he would have taken the wine and he would have filled a gla- he would have filled your glasses and he would have said drink. And here's what's interesting about this. As I was thinking about communion and, and praying for us today, I was reminded that being broken comes before being filled. Right? And as you come and take communion, it's a great opportunity to realize we are a broken people. And we don't have this figured out. Jesus is constantly changing our box. And that's okay. Let him change our box. Where does something else have more priority? Come down to the table and let this be a representation of you being broken and you being filled. And the way we do this here at Fellowship, whenever you're ready, come down. We'll give you the elements, the the cracker and the grape juice, and go back to your seats. And then we will take them together as a community. All right, so let me pray for us. Jesus, as we come down to this table, as we come down to this table, let us remember 
that you are the priority in our life. That everything else falls into place when you are put in the right place. And so Jesus, may we do that today in, in, in any area in our life that you show us needs a switch, may we do that today. Without worrying about the consequences, without worrying about the steps that need to follow after that, may today be the simple day we say, you know what, Jesus, you're right. This has taken a bigger place in my life than you, and I'm giving you that place. And then would you show us what tomorrow looks like? Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now please take time. Think through that. When you're ready, come down. Also, if you're gluten-free, let one of the elders know we've got the little plate of the gluten-free crackers. Whenever you're ready. So as Jesus takes his right place in our life, may we be a changed people and may we be more like him because his body was broken for us. And his blood was shed for us. Jesus, you are worthy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.